Our text this morning is Luke 22, verses 35 through 53. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, And the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask this morning that you would reach us by your word, that you would help us to know ourselves better, and that knowing that, we would know our need for a Savior. Lord, we ask that you would bless us by the power of your word, in Christ's precious name, amen. I think many of us have heard the old saying, It's always darkest 
before the dawn. For many of us, it becomes a way of life. Bad things happen to us, and we repeat that saying, just waiting for something around the corner to brighten up. For things to get better, just simply because we think they can't get any worse. That saying has some insight into what we see here this morning. But even though it is darkest for our Lord Jesus Christ, it is not just simply something coming down the pike, something around the corner that will fix the situation. It is darkest at this time by the design of the Lord our God. He has designed the darkness for such a time as this, as our Lord Jesus Christ works His work of redemption, redeeming for Himself a people. It does not get any darker than the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like us to see three things this morning in this dark, dark evening. The first is I would like us to notice that Jesus prepares His people. In spite of what is going on in His own life, Jesus is still preparing His people. Secondly, we see our Lord Jesus Christ confronting the cross. We see Jesus confronts the cross. And then the third thing we see that should give us great hope is that in the midst of this darkness, Jesus is in control. Jesus is preparing His people. He is confronting the cross and He is in control. Let's begin then by looking at how Jesus is preparing His people in our text, beginning at verse 35. Jesus speaks to the disciples at the end of the Last Supper, and He says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. Now, Jesus is trying to prepare His people for entrance into a hostile world. He is finishing his work on earth. We understand that, and our mind is drawn to the cross. That is the finish of Jesus' work. But he's still preparing his people, even at this hour. The cross, we must remember, is an ending, but it is also a beginning. For there is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes on after the cross, Gathering together his elect, gathering together the lost to form a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And so what Jesus does is he begins here at this changing point in time by reminding the disciples, first and foremost, by reminding them of their previous success in obeying him. He says to them, do you remember the time when I told you to go out and not take anything? And some of you thought I was a bit crazy. You didn't know what would happen. I told you not to bring food, not to bring money, not to worry about traveling. And you obeyed me. Did you lack anything? No, not a thing, Lord. You see, Jesus is reminding them that it's always safe to trust Jesus. We need that reminder too, don't we? Because there are many things in our life that make us feel unsafe, make us feel unable. And Jesus is reminding us that it's always safe to trust Him. And He especially does this here because a change is coming. 
Look at verse 37. He says to them, or excuse me, in verse 36. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, at first glance, this looks confusing. You know, much ink is spilled by commentators trying to make the Word of God hard to understand. And many commentators look at this text and they can't understand why Jesus would possibly say something different now than He had said in Luke 9. Except for the most obvious thing that you and I do this all the time. We say different things based on different circumstances. The times change. Our goals have shifted. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to here. He's saying, I had sent you out on safe ground. You were among God's people. They were bound to support you and to take care of you. But now you have a new task. You are going to be going out into a hostile world. We're going to take the gospel of grace, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but we're going to take it to the entirety of the world. And you have to be prepared to do that. You have to be ready to go beyond your comfort zone. You see, this is what Jesus is telling them. He is not giving them the equivalent of a post-it note with a checklist of things to pack. Shoes, toothbrush, comb. Now what he is saying is you need to be prepared for anything. You need to be prepared to support yourself. You need to be prepared to defend yourself. You need to be prepared for others to be against you. Now, the disciples don't get this. We see this in verse 38. They've listened to Jesus talk about this change in circumstance, a change in the mission, and they look at him and they say, well, we got two swords right here, Jesus. Jesus' response, I think likely because of the urgency of the hour, is telling. He looks at them and he says, enough of that, let's go on to something else. It's enough. You see, Sometimes we just don't get what Jesus is saying. That's why we need to study God's Word. That's why we need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. When Jesus is explaining things to us, we need to understand why He is telling us what He is telling us. And at this point in time, Jesus has just been speaking to them of His betrayal, of His suffering, of His death, and how things are going to change. And They need to be prepared to go beyond their comfort zone. We need to be prepared for that too, don't we? You know, it's very easy to speak about the things of God in a Sunday school class or sitting in a pew next to someone in church. But are we ready to take the story of our Lord Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our workplace, out and around throughout the world? Are we prepared to go on mission trips, to perhaps consider A career as a missionary. Perhaps some of you here right now, the Lord is calling you to ministry. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next month, but maybe a decade from now. Are you preparing your hearts now for the mission that Jesus has for you? You see, we need knapsacks and money and swords. We need to have food and provisions from the Word of God. We need to be able to provide for ourselves 
We need to be able to defend ourselves. If we are going to take the gospel out into the world, we need to be ready for those who will resist it and who will attack. We need spiritual weapons of warfare. We need to understand apologetic arguments. We need to know scriptures memorized in our hearts. We need to be ready to hear people say, you're crazy. I never would believe that. What makes you think that? Jesus is preparing us, even in his last hours, to take the ministry of the church throughout all the world. We need to stop focusing on the wrong things like the disciples did. Look, here's some swords. You see, they were so focused on the here and the now, they didn't understand the mission. And we can do this as well. We think the sum of evangelism is memorizing five verses that we say in the same order. We're looking for the exact perfect way to speak to someone that will always cause them to embrace Christ. But you see, the world doesn't work like that. We need to be prepared to go out into a hostile world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is also preparing his disciples for the fulfillment of the promise that will come. For he quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12 to them. He says, the scripture must be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. You see, everything is about to change, Jesus says, because it's not God's will for things to continue on as they are. God's will is for Jesus to be numbered among the transgressors. God's will is not for Jesus to go and gather large crowds throughout the countryside. God's will is not for the Sadducees and the Pharisees to bow down before him. God's will is for Jesus to suffer and die. Because you see, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And Jesus has a clear understanding of his calling because of this. He knows that the Old Testament promises will become true and will be fulfilled. Do you think about the Old Testament promises? The promises where God says, I will be your God and I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise in the New Testament where the scriptures say, in my father's house are many mansions, a place is prepared for you. You see, we have to understand those promises are in God's word to focus our hearts and our minds upon what God is doing. This is more than a warning to the disciples. It is a call to them to trust God's word, no matter how hard or difficult it seems. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the promise that Jesus brings to you, that he identifies with sinners, that Jesus identifies with you and with me. You see, we think of the cross and we think of this passage, how Jesus is crucified between two thieves. But that is a picture only. Jesus could have been crucified between you and me because we are sinners, because we deserve the cross, because that is the punishment that we deserve. And Jesus so identifies 
with his people. He so identifies with sinners like you and me that he becomes as we are. The scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus identifies with us, but he does more than identify with us, Isaiah says. He not only is numbered among the transgressors, he bears sin. Jesus bears up under the weight, the eternal weight of sin. Have you thought about the nature of sin and how wicked it is and what a punishment it deserves? Jesus paid that penalty that you might not. That if you trust in Him by faith, if you trust that He has paid the cost that you could never pay, then a great transaction has been done. Jesus becomes your sin and you become the righteousness of Christ. You see, this is what Jesus is reminding us of. He's preparing to fulfill the promise. But this promise does not come to us without a cost. That's what our text this morning reminds us of. There is a cost paid by Jesus as he confronts the cross. We see this in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus is confronting the cross. He knows it is about to come to him, and he begins to enter upon a great struggle. He goes first and foremost to a familiar place. Luke tells us it was his custom to go here. John tells us in chapter 18 that he often went there with his disciples. And you can understand why. For Jesus, this garden was a place of fellowship and of peace. It's where he and the disciples went to share joy and to sing psalms to God. It was a place of joy and delight. And then it should not surprise us that this is where Jesus goes when it is darkest. You know that experience, don't you? For some of you even that are youngest among us, when things get really bad, when people are yelling in the house, when things get crazy, there's a spot you go to, right? Maybe it's your bed. Maybe it's under your bed. Maybe it's in your closet. There's a place you go that has good memories and where you feel safe. This is the weight of the world bearing down on our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes his disciples with him and he needs to pray. Matthew tells us that he takes the three inner ring disciples closer to him, but he still goes off at a distance to pray. In the end, he's alone. And Jesus will now begin to struggle in prayer. You see, I think there is perhaps no better passage in all of the Scripture that teaches us that Jesus was truly man. You know the truth of the Bible? That Jesus is truly God and truly man. Not mixed, but distinguished. And because of this, Jesus is at a place of deep struggle. It does not do us any good to view Jesus as somehow passively accepting everything that was going on. That denies his humanity. 
There is an ancient heresy that was corrected by church councils a few centuries after the death of Christ. It was called monothelitism. I know that's a mouthful. What it means is, there were some who believed Jesus only had one will, a divine will. And so Jesus was never affected going to the cross because he always had a divine will that was in tune with the Father and he was never confronted with a struggle of obedience. But you see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is truly man and that he has not one will but two, a divine will and a human will. And it is this human will that is struggling just as you or I might have struggled. Of course, Jesus is also divine. But you and I have never struggled with the weight of the world's sins upon us. You see, Jesus is truly man. And he goes through a fierce conflict here, Luke tells us. Luke tells us that he is in agony as he prays to his Father. Now, when I use the word agony, for many of us, we think immediately of physical pain. We say, I was in agony. Ladies will think back to childbirth. People will think back to when they had a great broken bone or some other illness. And physical pain is certainly an agony. But I don't think that's what Luke means here. What Luke is referring to is more than physical pain. There is an extreme distress of mind that has taken over Jesus. There is a violent conflict within him. Because he knows he must go to the cross, but he can't imagine how he would go to the cross. He is struggling within himself, and he finds the answer in prayer. When you struggle, what do you do? Do you do like people in the world and try and let random chance bring you the answer? If the next car that drives by is an SUV, I'm going to do this. But if it's a truck, I'm going to do that. Do you flip a coin? Roll a die? Do you try and think through all of the consequences and logic of the decision? Or do you follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who was faced with the gravest struggle anyone in the universe had ever faced? Do you struggle with God in prayer? Are you on your knees before a holy God, begging Him to give you insight, to give you clarity, to give you purpose, to give you peace? You see, Jesus struggles here in the garden. But more than struggling, He also suffers. And and this gives us a picture of the cross as well. You see, when we think about Jesus being crucified again, we are drawn often in our experience to think about the physical. We look at our hands and we wonder what it would be like to have nails driven into them. We wonder how painful it would be to have thorns placed upon our heads. We wonder what it would be like to slowly slowly suffocate on the cross. Or to have a spear thrust into our side. We think about all of the whips and all of the pain that Jesus went through in his body. But you see, here in the garden, we are given a picture of the greater pain, the greater suffering that Jesus went through. You see, Jesus is at a complete end of himself. He goes to pray, 
and he kneels. Now for us that seems just common sense. It's standard procedure. But you see, one of the main reasons that we as Christians kneel in prayer is because of this passage. In Jesus' day, the position of prayer was typically not to kneel. It was to stand up with arms outstretched and head lifted up to heaven. See, Jesus kneels in prayer here because he is worn out. He is at an end of his endurance. Now, why would this be? Is it just simply because he's faced with death? That does not seem to make much sense, does it? Because there have been many people, and there are many stories throughout the history of the world, of people who have faced death with a smile on their face, with no concern at all. People at a firing squad asking for a cigarette. People singing on a drowning ship. But you see, what Jesus is facing here is not just physical death. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming was judgment upon sin. It was the wrath of God stored up in a cup that he would have to drink to its dregs. Now this tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? Because if our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, is worn out in prayer thinking about the judgment on sin, how can we treat sin so lightly? You know, the Bible teaches us, our theology teaches us, that if Jesus had to pay the price for one of your sins, it would be the same level of agony. Because sin deserves an infinite punishment at the hands of a wrathful, holy God. As we look at our Savior suffering in the garden, bearing under the weight of approaching judgment, how can we be so light and speak of little white lies? Of things we do because we were tired. Of things we do to others because they deserve worse. How can we possibly look at our own lives and not be struck with horror at the sin that we commit each and every day? How can we not be rushing to the scriptures, rushing to the throne of God to find forgiveness and grace and the ability to obey the word of God? We treat sin far too lightly in the church today. Grace has become cheap. We think somehow we're helping grace to abound by letting sin abound. We need to look at the garden and see our Savior and see His suffering in the midst of all of this. It is impossible for us to completely understand what Jesus suffered. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this passage, put it well, and I think it is helpful for us to understand He says, since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured in mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth for you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. I can't describe for you what it would be like to be eternally separated from God. I can't describe for you 
what it would be like to be eternally separated from God that from all eternity you had been in perfect harmony and communion with. But I can say that this makes me hate my own sin more than I thought was possible. Can we resist sin the way Jesus resisted sin? Can we be swallowed up in prayer? Jesus poured himself out like blood. Do you see what Luke tells us in verse 44? The greater agony that Jesus was in, the more he prayed. This suffering tells us one other thing. Jesus loves me more than I could possibly imagine. As Jesus confronts the cross, there is a third and final thing. There is submission. You see, Jesus is here in the garden, and there is a sense that Jesus did not know what to do. It's exceedingly difficult to describe for you because I don't know anyone else that's one person with two natures and two wills. I don't know what it would be like to have two wills conflicted against each other. I don't know what it would be like to be human and frail, but yet be able to draw upon the resources of being fully God. But we can say this, that Jesus is somehow now mysteriously caught between the divine and the human. He knows what must be, but he cannot face it. And none of us could blame him. What is before him is suffering unimaginable. It is separation beyond thought. So how does Jesus resolve this? He goes to the Father. He goes to the Father and first he prays for relief. He addresses the Father tenderly. Father, if you are willing, if there's any way at all that it's possible, remove this cup from me. You see, Jesus knows exactly what this means. This is not a flight of fancy. Jesus knows the suffering that will come, and he's praying for relief. And yet at the same time, as he prays to the Father, he prays that great and wonderful gospel word that you should daily thank your Lord for. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus is showing us here His humanity, His true humanity. He is showing us what Adam was meant to be and failed. He is showing us what, by God's grace, we are meant to be in glory. That is to be perfect in our humanity and to submit to the will of the Father, knowing that that is good and right and just and true. Do we pray this way in our lives? Now, I don't mean how after we've prayed long and hard for a resolution to a situation or a crisis that we want to happen, and then we fling a throwaway, but your will be done, Lord. I mean, do we honestly believe that God's will should be done? That it's the best way for our prayers to be answered? Because you see, if we don't, then we're not with Jesus. We may believe in a sovereign God. We may confess with our confession that God is sovereign over all things, all creatures, and all their actions. And we leave out the important and critical detail that He is not only sovereign, He is good. He's not just in charge. 
He's in charge for the best of all things. Everything that has happened to you is according to the will of God. And sometimes that is greatly mysterious. I have had to look into the face of parents who have asked why their young daughter has aggressive near-terminal cancer. And when asked, why would this happen? The only way I can answer is, I don't know. But I trust that God will tell me. I trust that Jesus knows what's best. And that somehow, some way, this is for our good and for the good of the kingdom of God. I don't know what it could be. It could be a doctor or a nurse that you were meant to testify to. That might live in eternal glory because of this situation. It might be a lesson that the Lord is teaching you. It might be a way that you can minister to others. But we have to understand, if God is sovereign and God is good, that all things that happen to us are as they should. We should never be praying that God's will would not be done. Because that's short-sighted. Jesus could have prayed that way. And just think of what that would have done for you and for me. You see, Jesus understands the nature of God. And then, as if there is a reminder needed for us of why Jesus is here and why Jesus is suffering, Luke gives it to us almost immediately in verse 5. He rose from prayer and he found the disciples sleeping. The most critical moment in the universe. And they can't keep it together. Isn't that a picture of you and me? We think we can keep it together. We think that when critical things come before us, that we would match the task. But Jesus tells us over and over again that we cannot, that we are unable, that we are lost without Him. You see, we are like disciples who are asleep and would sleep through all of this, but for Jesus coming and getting us. Jesus confronts the cross for you and for me. The third and final thing that we see here this morning is that Jesus is also in control. It is easy to look at this and see events overtaking Jesus, to focus on the plotting of Judas, the wickedness of the chief priests. We see here in verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. You see, when others act, our focus goes upon them. And we think somehow Jesus takes a back seat. Even the text seems to imply this because they're interrupting Jesus. While he's still speaking, now comes this crowd. And you can imagine the noise and the torches and the swords and the clanging of the armor. You can imagine all of the fears that the disciples had coming true right here. Judas' betrayal is before them. The plot had been laid, and they seem in complete control. Judas has even chosen the most wicked way possible to betray Jesus. He doesn't point him out of a lineup. He gives him a kiss, a sign of affection and friendship and tenderness and love. Did you know that the Greek word for kiss here is the same word for love? That's how closely the two things are connected. You see, 
all that Jesus had done for Judas, all the warnings that had been given, all the warnings about greed, all the warnings about self, even the fact that they are in this place that has memories of joy and fellowship, Judas casts it all aside and he chooses the most wicked way. But you see, Jesus is still in control. He lets us know this. For he looks at Judas and he calls this exactly what it is. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You see, Jesus has set the time and the place. Judas may think he has, but Jesus has. Jesus has called this plot for what it is. And even at this late hour, Jesus is reaching out to Judas, warning him, calling him to himself. Would you possibly do this betrayal, Judas? Think the better of it. And then we see the next action that comes up with our disciples. After all Jesus had been teaching them, he had just told them that he had to be numbered among the transgressors. Not but a few moments ago. He had told them previously that the Son of Man had to suffer and die. He has been teaching and preaching to them over and over again. And they still want to do it their way. They ask Jesus, Should we defend you with the sword? Should we strike? And then, as if to cap off their helplessness, they don't even wait for the answer to the question before they strike. Now, we know from another gospel that it's Peter who takes this action. You can never fault Peter here for bravery, but it's typical that Peter's mouth and body move about five minutes ahead of his mind. And so this small army is coming to take Jesus. They have a lawful warrant for his arrest, and without even a word from his Lord, he strikes out before the question can even be answered. Now we look at this and we say, what a fool Peter was. But turn the mirror upon yourself. Do we act without thinking or consulting the Bible? When you are faced with a a large fundamental decision, do you consult what God's will is? Do you ask God in His Word to enlighten you as to what you should do? Or do you simply act out? You see, this is our tendency. We want control. We want to seize control of the situation. That's what Peter and the disciples want to do. They see something happening that they don't like, and they want to shake the control for themselves. It's not surprising that Peter would act thus, because previously, when Jesus told the disciples that he would suffer and die, Peter said, oh, no, no, Lord, you can't do that. That's not part of my plan. But you see here, Jesus is in charge of the plan. He knows this is an unlawful act. He knows it's an unwise act. And he knows it's contrary to God's plan. And so he puts a stop to it with a word. Cut it out. And then, lest anyone accuse him of resisting arrest and causing damage, he heals his enemy. The one who has come to take him to be tortured and to die and to suffer the wrath of God. Jesus takes the time to heal him. Do you see how completely in control Jesus is? 
None of this is happening by chance. Jesus has turned this all around. And when we see this, we must remember that our weapons, our real weapons, are spiritual. We will not advance the kingdom by laws in Congress. We will not advance the kingdom by guns or tanks or airplanes. The kingdom is advanced by the spread of the gospel, by the preaching of God's word, by prayer. You see, our weapons are powerful, but they are spiritual. And Jesus is reminding us here that he is in complete control and that we need to trust him even when we feel out of control. You see, it's the darkest hour possible. Jesus turns and he points out how wrong this is, that this is happening in verse 52. He says, why are you coming to come attack me with swords and clubs? I was out in public all the time. You could have confronted me any time you wanted then. But you see, the irony here is their weapons would be useless if Jesus were to resist them. They could be incinerated with a word. Legions of angels could come down to defend Jesus. But this is, Jesus says, the hour of darkness. It is the climax of the world's resistance to Jesus. This is the climax of how the world says, I don't want Jesus. Get him away from me. Kill him. It is the climax of hell. Hell thinks that it is one. This is the great success that hell has had. No other time seems more under Satan's control than now. But but ultimately, this is not the world's hour. This is not hell's hour. This is God's hour. You see, even under darkness, God is in control. Beloved, we are not subject to impersonal forces beyond our control. We are subject to a good and sovereign God. Just like Jesus, we are in God's hands. Knowing that, we trust Him. Knowing that, we believe Him. Knowing that, we follow Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning (coughs) that You would remind us of the great love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for His people that he suffered beyond measure, (coughs) beginning in the garden, going to the cross, that we might know the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we ask that you would remind us and care for us. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.